want to go ahead and, as you're taking a seat, introduce Keith Simon. He's one of the lead pastors at The Crossing, the, uh, the church that our ministry is associated with. So I'll turn it over to Keith. So like Lily said, my name's Keith. For those of you who haven't met, love to get to meet you sometime. Uh, one of the pastors that started The Crossing 16 years ago. Um, I became a Christian here at Mizzou on campus. Didn't come from a Christian home. My wife became a Christian here as well. Uh, and, and one of the things that we learned to do after we became Christians is we learned to talk to people about a relationship with Christ using a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody familiar with The Four Spiritual Laws? Yeah, good. It's, they're not very good, but um, there were like little four laws that, that kind of contained a summary of how a person could know God. And so the first one was that God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. The second one was that human beings are sinful. The third one, that Christ died for sin. And the fourth one that we all needed to trust in Christ. So kind of went through how a person might think about becoming a Christian. But that first one was always really important. The first law, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Because that was kind of the draw in a sense of, you know, God cares about me. And he wants the best for me. And I've got this great plan out there for my life that God wants me to live. I remember the first time that that was really challenged in my thinking. Um, We were overseas in Hungary uh, when it was a communist nation. And we were kind of behind the Berlin Wall. And what we were doing is very secretive. We raised money like people here might go to Japan. We did the same thing to go to Hungary. Except we couldn't tell people where we were going because, of course, the communist state was completely uh, against the gospel, against Christianity, against the church. And so it was all kind of a hush-hush thing. We had to act like we were doing other things in the country while really we were looking for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. And my wife and I knew each other at the time. We weren't, we weren't dating at, at all at that point. But, but her team in that same city, they ran into some girls from Czechoslovakia. Same political conditions, same constraints against Christianity. And, and these girls listened to them about the gospel. And, and they, they, they said they wanted to believe in Christ. And so they'd never heard, by the way, they had never heard, like so many people we talked to, had never heard anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about the Bible. It was all completely new to them. So, so they had the girls back over to the apartment. They said, well, come over one of these nights and let's talk more about this before we leave. So, so just to help it all kind of make sense. And the girls came back over and, and it was clear that they talked to them that these girls from Czechoslovakia hadn't trusted. They were at high school, I think. They, they hadn't put their faith in Christ. Uh, and, they were, and, and, and the people on our team were kind of confused. They're like, well, I thought you were going to become Christians, and, and now it seems like you haven't, and, and I'm confused. And, and the girls look at us, and they said, look, here's the deal. If we become a Christian, we will have to mark on every college application, on every job, on every request for housing, we will have to mark the box that we're Christians. And it will be much, much harder for us in our life. And so they said, well, this is a big decision for us. We're thinking about it. Before we left that summer, those, those girls ended up putting their faith in Christ. And I've thought about them a lot over the years. What happened to them? Were they able to go to a school? Were they able to get a job? Were they able to find housing for whatever turned out to be their family? There was a huge cost for them becoming a Christian. 
And I remember thinking, but what about law one? God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. What happened to that? Because what was the wonderful plan for these girls' lives? Did God have a plan for them? Was it as wonderful as his plan was going to be for me? I came across this picture, if I can get out of the way. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true. God does love you. He does offer a plan for your life. But for a lot of first century Christians and a lot of Christians today, that plan might be different than what you expected it to be. It might be being in the Colosseum. It might be having to walk a harder path than you imagined. Tonight we're going to continue in your series through the Gospel of Mark, looking at Jesus and being challenged by who he is and by what he taught. And I think, if you're like me at least, that you'll be challenged by the words that we find Jesus saying in Mark chapter 8. Here we go, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, as he's done many times, and he has to keep telling them over and over and over that what's coming ahead of me is that I will face a a harsh punishment. I will face a harsh death. And the disciples don't ever quite get it. I mean, they take him aside, they argue with him, they tell him that he'll never let this happen to him. Because while Jesus knows what lays ahead of him, the disciples seem to be pretty clueless up into the end. But at this point, this is safe. It's safe for you and me because Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to him. But then immediately after, he starts applying it to us. He pushes it beyond him and starts getting personal in our life. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus says the weirdest things, and I swear the weirdest times. See, in Mark chapter 8, we're kind of at the apex of his ministry. The crowds are the biggest. People are paying attention. The movement is growing. The plan is going like he'd hoped. And, And at that moment, at that time, what do you think Jesus would be talking about? What do you think that Jesus would want to be saying to the crowds? I mean, if he's trying to build a movement, if he's trying to establish a church, don't you want to tell the crowds what they want to hear? Don't you want to keep them coming back for more? Imagine that you're a consultant. Let's say you're a consultant uh, in the Christian world. And, And the staff at Veritas call you up and they say, hey, the semester's going really great. This year, more students are involved, more students are coming to small group, more students are, are seeing Christ um, influence their life. 
we just had a fall retreat, and, and we had more students at that than we've ever had at a fall retreat. But it wasn't just the numbers, it was the spirit and the relationships and the kind of family that's being built there and what, what students were learning. Well, dear consultant, what should we do when we get back to campus? How many would stand up and say, yeah, the consultant would say, talk about suffering. Talk about how Jesus calls us to lay down our life and suffer. Well, no consultant says that. But see, Jesus wasn't into the consultants. Jesus doesn't live up to our expectations. He takes our expectations and turns it upside down and inside out because Jesus isn't necessarily trying to build a big movement. He's calling people into a relationship with him and to follow him. And Jesus was never worried about thinning out the crowds. He never held back. He never pulled punches. He never moistened his finger and put it in the wind like a politician might do today to try to get in front of the crowd. So it's a very Jesus-y thing to do, to come back from fall retreat and talk about suffering. But that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. That's exactly what we're going to do because that's where we are in the Gospel of Mark. When the crowds were at their biggest, Jesus shared hard truth. And he talked about this. He said, look, I'm going to go to the cross and die. But now I'm calling all of my followers to come with me. I'm calling all of my followers to go to the cross each day and die to themselves. I'm calling all those who name themselves Christians to realize that each day they take up their cross. Each day they die to self and live for Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but Mark, the one who wrote this gospel, was not one of the original disciples. He, he got the information about Jesus' life from the apostle Peter. And so it's kind of interesting as you read the books of Peter, you'll see that he kind of, well, you can almost imagine Peter in his older age writing out the gospels that he wrote, or the letters that he wrote, thinking back about some of these times that Mark records about Jesus is teaching. Because listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.21. Doesn't this sound familiar like the verses we just read? He says, to this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you, and he left you an example that you should follow in his steps. The earliest Christians, their commitment to follow Christ, their commitment to follow the example of Jesus, is what led the church to grow so radically in such a short period of time. We know from history and from the Gospels that the last three years of Jesus' life, he spent it in what is called his public ministry. He spent it teaching, doing miracles, uh, healing people. He, He did that leading up to his death. Now, at the end of those three years, Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest teacher to have ever lived, how many people did he have? I mean, I bet there were Hundreds or thousands of people who were following him at the time. No. No, he couldn't even get all 12 of his closest followers, disciples, to show up at his death. No. I mean, the, the movement could have started in my living room. 
at the end of three years, Jesus had precious little to show for it. After Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, his disciples called a prayer meeting in Jerusalem and got everybody together to pray. 120 people showed up. That's it. That's a lot less people that are sitting in this room right now. After three years of ministry, there are 120 people who will come and pray. But in three centuries, in three centuries, the Roman Emperor Constantine knows that it is to his advantage to call himself a Christian because he knows that Christians are dominating the Roman Empire. In three centuries, the Christians go from what would fit in my living room to being well over 50% of the entire Roman Empire. In three centuries, in just 300 years, it goes from 12 disciples and 120 in a prayer meeting to millions of people all throughout the empire. How does that happen? Historians and sociologists still wrestle with the question, how does anyone explain the rapid growth of Christianity? How does anyone explain the rapid growth of the church? How does that happen? Well, one of the things historians do is they go back and they look at those early centuries of the Roman Empire. There were diseases that spread very quickly, and of course, without modern medicine, those diseases were, well, they were deadly. And there was one disease, probably uh, smallpox, but it might also have been measles, at least that's the best that people can put together, that that went rampant through the Roman Empire, killing 5,000 people people a day. 5,000 people a day. By the time it had run its course in about a 15-year period, 25% of the Roman Empire had been wiped out. They didn't know how exactly it was uh, or exactly what the disease was, but they knew it was spread by contact. And so do you know what you did if you could? You ran. You left Rome. You got out. Those people with resources, those people who were wealthy, they all left. We know that because one doctor named Galen had those resources, and he writes about how he and others abandoned Rome because of the disease. Do you know who stayed? The Christians. Do you know who stayed? To take care of not only their own sick, but also the sick of the, the pagan sick, those who weren't Christians, the Christians stayed. They stayed at great risk of their own life. They stayed and gave their life so that others could live. And because they did that, the gospel spread. Because they did that, people stopped and asked, why are you staying when you could leave? Well, see, I know this guy named Jesus, and he loves you, and he offers a wonderful plan for your life. Won't you want to follow him? How do you do that? Where do you get the courage as a Christian to stay and face death? Well, because you've already taken up your cross to follow him. Because you follow a Savior who went to his death and called you to go to yours on a daily basis to die to yourself so that others might live. That's exactly what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Catch this. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. When Christians die to themselves so that others may live, the church grows. 
But it wasn't just the, careless, or the, the, the selfless acts of love. It was also the suffering and the persecution that Christians endured. It was not easy to be a Christian in the first couple of centuries of, of the Roman Empire. They were persecuted. And what you, would you expect? You would expect that when the persecution came, when they threw people to the lions, you would expect that Christians would go quiet. You would expect that the church would shrink. I mean, that's exactly what the emperors were trying to do. They were trying to squish out, stamp out the Christian church. And they said, here's how we do it. We've done this before with other movements that we haven't liked. We will torture them. We will arrest them. We will harass them. But here's the deal. The more they did that, the more the church grew. Historians say there are well-authenticated cases where those who persecuted the church, those who watched Christians be persecuted, ended up becoming believers themselves. So one of the earliest church leaders, a guy who lived in the second century, so in the 100s AD, a guy named Tertullian, has this famous quote. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Christians who died, the Christians who gave their life, the Christians who spilled their blood for Christ to obey Jesus, their blood was the seed that kept growing the church because people kept looking and saying, what is it about them that they're willing to give their life for this one they call their savior. One of the men who was killed for his faith in the uh, second century, so again in the 100s, is a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp had one of the last connections to the disciples. He was, by Christian tradition, a disciple of John, who wrote the Gospel of John, and as well as the letters of John in the New Testament. So it's 156, and some of the civil authorities have decided that they are going to persecute Christians again. And they begin to look for this man named Polycarp, who is a leader of the church. He was not too hard to find. Here's the deal, though. What were they going to do with him? He was 86 years old. It doesn't do much good to kill an 86-year-old man. So they didn't really want to kill him. What they wanted to do was to get him to deny his faith. That would be a victory for them. And so the, the pro-council, the, the, the uh, kind of civil authority, he has this conversation with Polycarp. And he says, look, it's not a big deal. Just declare that Caesar is Lord. Because the Romans weren't that worried if, if the Christians had their own gods. They just wanted them to confess that Caesar was also Lord. Polycarp, according to the historian Eusebius, Polycarp said this, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? I have wild beasts, the proconsul said. If you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire. Polycarp answered, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire that you know nothing about, the fire of judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. Why do you hesitate? Do what you want. When they finally took Polycarp away, condemned, 
he, he, he said they, what they wanted to do was when they built this fire, this kind of big pyre, which was a fire they would burn them in. They had a stake in the middle, and they were going to nail, because this was the custom, right? In order to keep the person in the fire, they would nail their hand to the stake. And Polycarp said this, because he didn't want his hand nailed. He said, let me be as I am. God will grant me to remain in the fire unmoved without being secured by nails. Polycarp was burned alive. And the church grew. Because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. Now it's approximately 202 AD and the uh, edict of persecution has spread into northern Africa. Perpetua is a 22-year-old mother. We don't know if she's married or not. History has um, no, not mentioned her, her husband or the father of the child. But what she, we do know is that she was being educated. She had become a Christian, was being educated in this house church when the authorities broke in and arrested everyone present, including Perpetua and her child. Her father was a nobleman, a pagan, did not believe in Christ. And he came to the prison where she was, begging her to renounce Christ so that she could be free. She refused. He, out of a moment of panic and anger and embarrassment and grief, threatened to beat her. She said she would not recant. As the time grew close for their execution, the believers there would gather and pray and talk about their coming sufferings. And then it came time for their execution. Right before they were to be led out, they prayed together and shared a last meal and witnessed to the crowds outside. First, the men were taken out and toward the Colosseum. The pastor, a man named Saturus, stopped and witnessed his faith in Christ to the prison warden. They were then sent to the wild beasts. And then the women and children were brought out. They were turned over to a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. They were seriously, seriously wounded, but not killed. And so as custom, they were taken to the executioner, to the guillotine, to have their life finished. On the way to the guillotine, Perpetua, this 22-year-old mother who had just been, become a Christian, was being taught in this house church when she and her baby were arrested. She said this, she cried this out to her grieving friends, quote, Give out the word to the brothers and sisters. Stand firm in your faith. Love one another. And don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. The prison warden who had heard from Saturus, the pastor, about Christ and watched all this go down became a Christian. And he too became a martyr for the faith. Revelation twelve eleven. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I remember being a sophomore, I think, maybe a junior, sitting in Middlebush Auditorium, uh, uh, listening to a marketing professor. It was the first day of classes in the fall, and um, for some reason, I, I don't know why, but this marketing professor in his opening lecture thought it would be a great idea to take pot shots at Christians. 
and you're sitting there as a Christian in this auditorium, you know, Middle Bush Auditorium, one that you're familiar with. I seem to have a lot of classes there, hundreds of students. And he was taking three or four pot shots in the course of the 50-minute class. And, and I sat there unsure of what to do. Now, I had just become a Christian myself, not too much before that time. And I didn't know, what do Christians do when they're mocked in front of a whole classroom? Do you do anything? Are you supposed to do anything? I didn't know. So, so I didn't know any better, but I just thought, well, I'm just going to go talk to him about it. And I remember going over to Middlebush into his office to find his office hours and to go there. And his, his, I can remember standing outside of his door just shaking. I was so scared for some reason. I was scared to walk in and talk to this professor and ask him what it was that, what it was going on in his life that would cause him to lash out against Christians in such a mocking way. I think it was such a traumatic time that, that I, I, I almost have it blacked out. I walked in. I know I had a conversation with him. I know he was stunned. I think it was the first time that a Christian had ever come talk to him. It did not last long. He was very gruff and like what you would expect. And then that was the end of it. Sometimes I feel like that situation where, where you have to decide... Am I going to be known as a Christian? I think that's a question that we're all going to have to keep wrestling with. In, in, in that class, for whatever reason, in that class, it was uncomfortable to say you were a Christian because Christians were looked down upon. The professor was going to mock you. And in some sense, I think that's a question for our lives and our generation. Will we be known as Christians? Will we stand up for Christ? Will we do it even if the consequences are, are, are significant? Will we do it if we're mocked and made fun of and looked down upon? Will we do it if like those Czech girls, the Czechoslovakian girls I told you about earlier, it costs us something important? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of standing up that leads a person to yell at speaker's circle or to attack or condemn or confuse, uh, you know, attack or condemn or accuse anyone. I'm talking about the kind of thoughtful, loving, gracious, kind interaction that says that I'm a Christian and I follow Christ and I take the scriptures seriously and I love you and I want to interact and have a dialogue, but I won't. I won't lay down my convictions because it doesn't, just because that doesn't live up to what you expect of me. Some people say that the suffering is something that Christians did in the past, but I'm not so sure that's true. I'm not sure that there perhaps might be more suffering in the future for those who stand with Christ than there ever was in the past. In the book of Acts, you find the stories about how the apostles went and they planted churches. And they, after they would plant churches, sometimes they would circle back to them and meet with them or write letters to them to encourage them in their faith. Listen to this, this little excerpt from Acts 14. It says, They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Those are just some cities. Now catch this. 
strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. So they went back to some of the cities where they'd planted churches and they wanted to strengthen and encourage the disciples. So what did they tell them? Well, here it is. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. That's how they strengthened the Christians. That's how they prepared them for what was to come. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you have that verse underlined in your Bible? Is that like on a magnet on your refrigerator at home? Yeah. Or is that one that somehow you just never quite came across? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a verse that we aren't familiar with as much as people who live in other parts of the world right now. But we might get familiar with it before too long. I read a story about a missionary in in China, just current. I mean, this isn't like decades ago or centuries ago. It's like very recently. And he heard about the persecution as the Chinese government clamped down on the church, imprisoned people, tortured people. And he heard about the heroic stories of torture and, and suffering and persecution that the people had endured. And he said to them, why haven't you written this down? Why don't we know about this over in the West in America? Why haven't you written a book? And they just, they just looked at him like, they, they just were unmoved. They, they, they thought it was an odd question. And he kept asking it and asking it. So one of the uh, leaders in the church, they took him over to the door. And they, the door faced east. And, and he opened the door and he said, you know, uh, where's this sign going to come up tomorrow? It was going to come up there in the east. He said, right. He said, now, have you ever gotten your kids together and taken them to the window of your house and said, hey, look, here's something really exciting today. The sun is going to come up right over there. And the guy was like, well, of course not. That's what happens every single day. And the man said, yeah, that's why we don't write books about persecution here. Because that's what happens every single day. It is our normal life. It is what we trust God with. That is what Christians around the world, our brothers and sisters following the same Savior who went to the cross and then called us to go to the cross daily, to die to ourselves, that is what they face day by day. It is a normal part of life. And when you hear Christians who live in suffering and persecution, when you hear them pray, it's striking what they don't pray for. It's the same thing when you read the New Testament and you watch the suffering and the persecution that happens there. They don't pray for the same thing that today's Christians undergoing persecution don't pray for. And that is for it to stop. If I have any pain in my life, any difficulty, any trial, I'm like on my knees, oh please God, take it away. But you know what they pray for? They pray that God would give them the grace to remain steadfast in difficult times. They do not ask for it to stop. They ask for the courage to maintain their faith in the middle of it. 
Where do the Christians get that kind of courage? Well, back in Mark 8, Jesus said this in verse 35, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is try to save your life here and you lose it for eternity. But lose your life here for his sake and you keep it for eternity. So what Jesus is saying is you have to in some sense decide, is this the main world or is the world on the other side of the grave the main world? Where will you pursue your joy? Where will you pursue your happiness? If we were going on a trip, and maybe we were going to go to a city for a weekend, and we got there, and we got to the hotel rooms, and we looked around, and we said, yeah, I don't like these drapes. They're kind of ugly. And the carpet and the bedspread, I think we need to do something different in here. And we got on the phone, and we called some interior decorators, and we had them come, and we had them redo the whole room. You think, well, nobody would do that. You're just there for a weekend. You wouldn't invest your time and your money to try to get the hotel room just right when you're there for like three days. But isn't that what we do in our life? Because God says that in eternity, our life here is like a three day weekend, it is gone. Psalm 103 says that our life is like grass. The wind blows over it and its place remembers it no more. Our life here in this world is like a three-day weekend and yet we come in and we try to make everything in this life and in this world exactly the way we like it. And it's not bedspreads and drapes and carpets. It's careers and appearances and grades and images and money and everything else. Yeah. And God says it's gone. It's like trying to remodel a hotel room for a weekend. No one would be so absurd. So you see, the Christians who undergo persecution and have the right perspective, the Christians who know how to die to themselves daily so that they can live for Christ, are the ones who see their life not as a weekend here, but they live not for the three days, but for eternity. They lose their life here so they can keep it for eternal life. So, two more little stories and we'll be done. One, we go back to China currently. We go back to China with um, the believers there. And, and, and what do they say when the authorities come after them? What, what do they say? They train people. They train in the house churches. Here's how we're going to handle this. And so the authorities come and they say, you must stop following Christ. You must stop going to church. And they say, well, we're not going to go, stop going to our house church. The the state has a church. It doesn't believe the gospel. They go to their house churches where they believe in Jesus and they follow Jesus. And they say, we're not going to stop. And they go, well, then we'll take away your property. And they say to them, they teach their people. They say, well, just tell them that you gave all your property to Jesus. And so he'll have to ask him. And that throws the authorities, they say, off for a little bit. The authorities aren't quite sure what to say to people who've given everything to Jesus. And they said, well, then, then, 
then we can't get to Jesus, but we can get to you. We will take everything you have away, and your family will have nowhere to live. And then they train the Christians there to say, well, that's okay, because then we will trust Jesus for a shelter, just like we trust him for our daily bread. And they say, if you keep this up, we will beat you. And they are trained to say, well, then we will trust Jesus for healing. And they say, well, then we will throw you into prison. And they say, well, then we will tell the captives in prison about Jesus and start new churches there. And they say, well, then we will kill you. And they say, that's fine, because then we'll go to heaven to be with Jesus. See, those Christians who want to be in heaven with Jesus cannot be bought. They cannot be intimidated. They cannot be lulled into or forced into keeping quiet about Jesus because they can have everything taken away from them, but they know that they still have the greatest treasure in the world, and that is their relationship with Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And so, um, in the 1960s, Jim Elliott and a few other guys went down, five guys total, went down to the Aka Indians. To um, the, the, the Aka Indians, they lived in Ecuador, and, and they'd never heard the gospel. And so they went down as missionaries, but the Aka Indians were very violent people, cannibals, and, and, and extreme violence. And in the course of trying to reach them with the gospel, all five were killed by the Indian. Now, we don't have time to talk about tonight, but one of the most amazing things in the whole world is that their wives, their wives, after their husbands had been killed, went in to the Aka Indians and said, you've killed our husbands, but they wanted you to know about Jesus. So we're coming here to tell you. And the Aka Indians became believers, large portions of them. But the, the national press couldn't figure out, they reported the story, and they couldn't figure out why is it that this one particular man, a guy named Jim Elliott, his wife's Elizabeth Elliott, perhaps you've heard of her, why is it that he would give up so much to go be a missionary and to give his life and be killed? Why would he waste his life? And he, he came through, they went through his diaries, and they came to this statement in his diaries said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Christian who realizes that there's nothing they can keep of what this world has to offer but realizes that their reward and treasure with Christ in heaven can never be taken away, that Christian is ready to do whatever God calls them to do, to walk whatever path God has called them to path, called them to take. The music team comes up. Let's the rest of us pray. Father, it is humbling to hear about our brothers and sisters in Christ alive today or throughout the centuries who, who stood for Christ, who loved people, who served and sacrificed, who faithfully walked with Jesus. Father, I pray that we would 
imitate their faith. That we would see our life as something far more than just a weekend here. But that we would live for eternity knowing that what we have in you can never be taken away from us. Because after everything here is said and gone, after everything here is taken away, what we're still going to have is Jesus. And no amount of suffering and no amount of persecution and no amount of trial and no amount of hardship can ever take Jesus away from us. That's what we want. Give us Jesus, Lord. More of Jesus.